Hello, Chicago and New York City listeners and listeners from other cities. I'm excited to share that 80 Minutes Around the World Immigration Stories has a couple of live storytelling shows in mid-October. On Saturday, October 12th at 4 p.m., our show returns to Manhattan at the Caveat as part of the third annual Speak Up, Rise Up Festival. Then Thursday, October 17th, 80 Minutes Around the World returns to the Wilmot Theater in Chicago. If you've loved our stories on this podcast, please come out and support our storytellers as they pour their hearts out on stage. For information on tickets, please visit our Facebook page or website. You can also find more information on New York City's Speak Up, Rise Up Festival by going to speakupriseup.com. And now, here's another episode. From the 80 Minutes Around the World, Immigration Stories, a storytelling show. This is Immigration Stories with Nestor Gomez. Stories and conversations with immigrants, refugees, second, third generations, and allies, where we explore the ideas, policies, and histories that forge national identity, community, and belonging in America. We are your hosts, Angel Ling and... Nestor Gómez. This episode follows the recent cuts the current White House administration made on September 26 to the U.S. Refugee Admissions Program, setting a cap for the number of refugees the U.S. admits in 2020 to 18,000, down from the program's current cap at 30,000 and just a fraction of the 110,000 limit set in 2016, President Barack Obama's last year in office. Likewise, on September 26, the White House also issued a new executive order on enhancing state and local involvement in refugee resettlement, which requires state and local governments to provide written consent to the federal government prior to their ability to admit refugee resettlement into their communities. When we witness injustice and discrimination, what actions count and what counts at this political moment? In this episode, refugee advocate Alana Murphy shares her story of standing up for the things she believes in and making sure to hear and share all sides of the refugee resettlement story. First, here's Alana's story as told on stage for 80 Minutes Around the World, Immigration Stories on August 8, 2019 at Chicago's Stephen Wolf Theater. I will never forget January 28, 2017. One day after President Trump signed his first executive order, entitled Protecting the Nation from Foreign Terrorist Entry into the United States. At the time, I was working with World Relief Chicago as an employment counselor, helping refugees find their first jobs in the United States, in Chicago. That night, I was visiting an elderly Syrian couple, Fatima and Mahmoud, who had come to Chicago in the care of their youngest son, Jabour. When the family fled Syria, they were separated. Their only daughter had sought asylum in Turkey with her husband. Earlier that fall, there had been talk of their daughter possibly coming to Chicago. At the time, she was eight months pregnant. And Fatima would tell me how hopefully, inshallah, the baby would be born here in Chicago, here in the United States. After the election that fall, their daughter's arrival was delayed indefinitely. And the baby was born thousands of miles away from the expectant, hopeful grandparents. That night, January 28th, 
Several World Relief colleagues and I were having dinner in the couple's apartment in their living room. A folded plastic table clattered with shinina glasses, pita bread, and a steaming plate of frika and chicken. We've been talking that night about protests, our protest, our protest experiences and the recent travel ban. I had recently participated in the Women's March on Washington, held the weekend after President Trump's inauguration, and I told the family a little bit about my experience. Instantly, Jabor chimed in and he asked, were you afraid? I had to think. Afraid of the police? Afraid of my fellow demonstrators? Afraid of a post-protest government huntdown with consequences? No. I had to confess that our form of protest was actually an angry, entitled display of power. Power to express yourself without worrying where your words will fall. That day, the only police presence I felt was a, a black army vet posing for selfies with several of the demonstrators, two police officers asleep in their car, feet up on the dashboard. Jabor began to tell us about protests in Syria. He showed us how demonstrators covered their mouth and nose with scarves to filter out tear gas. He described how military personnel began to beat demonstrators, how screaming activists fleeing trampled their own colleagues. He told us about how the dead bodies of demonstrators were lifted up raised above people's heads, and used to rally people for future protests. He told us about how when death marched with them, their possible, the possible consequences of their actions were never an afterthought. Just then, my colleague's cell phone started blowing up. Protesters had gathered at O'Hare Airport to demand the release of several refugees and green card holders had been delayed because of Trump's uh, recent travel ban. With every new message and news alert, my colleagues and I, we were anxious to go to the airport and participate in whatever action was taking place at O'Hare. After explaining the situation to the family, surprisingly, both Fatima and Jabor insisted on going with us, Jabor only hesitating to ask if he should bring his scarf for potential tear gas. After rapidly washing the dishes and cramming into my colleague's Prius, we headed to O'Hare. We parked in the economy lot. We took the shuttle to Terminal 5. The slow descent of the escalator, revealing a crowd of 500 or so people, armed with a sea of swaying signs. Each of us that night, transported to O'Hare with singular purpose, to demand the release of people that we felt had been wrongly detained, and to support the team of human rights lawyers who were already there, working for their release. We stayed at O'Hare until half past 11. We stayed until the legal team announced that every single detainee had been released. We stayed until the crowd of victorious, everyday Chicagoans started to go home. There's not time tonight for me to tell you about the demonstration in its entirety, but there are two memories, two moments, that I will carry with me forever. The first is of Jabor. After attempting to lead several chants in Arabic that the general crowd could not follow, <laughs> Jabor started clapping. He led us in clapping chants until our hands were red and stinging. Jabor, unable to express himself in English that night, was a hero, appreciated by the people around him and supported. Later, he told me, I feel like the protesters, what they say is genuine. This country, it's a remarkable place. He may have lost Syria, but I believe that that night Jabor felt that maybe this country could become his own. 
The second is of Fatima, clapping, nearly dancing, and chanting to herself in Arabic, Let my daughter come, let my daughter come. I don't believe that anyone that night besides me heard and understood her plea. I don't believe that anyone understood that for her, this was not simply an action of political protest, but a personal preservation. The opportunity to voice the pain she felt separated from her family members, and know that at least in a small way, the hundreds of protesters at O'Hare Airport had her back. They wanted what she longed for. They felt her loss. They wanted to magnify and translate her voice. Thank you. Here's Alana and Nestor in Chicago, where Alana shares the impact on refugees since the current White House administration's January 2017 executive order on refugee resettlement and travel ban on nationals from six Muslim-majority countries, as well as her work through Beautiful Crossing. Can you tell us a little bit more that we haven't heard on the story about what happened today? Sure. So I wrote this story um, while I was still working with World Relief Chicago. Um, so up on the north side, I was working as an employment counselor and helping refugees find jobs in the Chicago area. Um, and at that point, I had been visiting the Syrian family. So the story is about my visit to their apartment the night that the travel ban um, or the first executive order that President Trump enacted was released. Um, so in that story, I'm in the, the Syrian family's apartment, and we learned that there are protesters who are gathering at, at O'Hare Airport. Um, and so my colleague and I decide we want to go. And we tell the family, we think we're going to make kind of our excuses, right, and say, you know, sorry, like, we're leaving dinner early, but we really want to go to the airport because there's this protest. And they immediately say, okay, well, we'll wash the dishes and let's go. And we thought, oh, wait, hold on, hold on. It's okay. Like, we don't want to trouble you. You know, you're working long hours and, and it'll be long. We don't know when we'll come back tonight and you should rest. And, and is it also because you know that as a refugee, as an immigrant, they might be placed in a position of danger that you are not going to face? We didn't, we didn't know what the protest would look like. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, I don't know if I felt that they would be in danger, but I, I definitely, definitely didn't think that it shouldn't be your burden. Or, But they were so excited to go, and they instantly said, you know, we want to go with you. Uh, we want to be there. And I thought, wow, actually, rarely do I have the opportunity to to feel like I am protesting or speaking up alongside of the people that I love and that I want to kind of fight for. And so it was a really rare opportunity to to not only be expressing my opinion, but then also really see um, people that I feel um, I really want their voices to be represented, be there and be screaming and cheering and clapping and be part of it. Um, and that was a really amazing experience for me and I think also for for Fatima and, and Jabor, who are the two kind of characters in my story. And I completely understand that um, the risk that some people might be placing to, because right now I'm, I'm, uh, well, I'm a United States citizen, but there was a time when I was undocumented. And being undocumented, you cannot just go into like, into a march and I like protest because if you get caught, Guess what? You get deported. It's not the same thing that you be placed into jail or, be, or you have to pay a fine. You actually get kicked out of the country. So we do have to be uh, mindful of the fact that some people, although they might be want to 
be there protesting. They want to be able to tell the stories. We might not be able to get them to tell the stories. Yeah, I agree. I definitely agree. I think in that story, um, one of the things that really stands out to me is that um, for many people who are coming to the United States as refugees or people who are coming back from an immigrant background, um, especially if you're coming with limited English, coming here is, is a hard experience. It's frustrating and it can be... Um, it can feel like your identity and who you were has kind of been taken from you. Um, but that at the same time, there's a lot of opportunity for people who feel empowered by being here in the United States and the experiences that they then are able to have. Like Fatima and Jabor in the story and being able to express and be part of a protest, express their opinions without being afraid of the police or the government in this situation. I know that our country is not perfect and that not everyone might, would feel that way at all times, but that when you're coming from somewhere else, a lot of times then you're able to kind of seize opportunities for the first time here in the U.S. Um, so even for, for example, if you're a Syrian refugee who's been living in Turkey and you've never been allowed to legally work, for the first time you can go and you can even have a job interview. You can fill out a job application. And it sounds like, you know, a job is what you do to survive. It's not a privilege but in, for many people, it's been something that's been denied to them. Um, or if you're from Sri Lanka and you've been living in a refugee camp in Indonesia, you've never gone to school or a formal school program in your life. And now you're in eighth grade and you're landed here in the middle of Chicago and you get to put on a graduation robe and graduate from eighth grade. It's amazing. I want to know a little bit about what got you into working with refugees and immigrants. Sure. Thanks, Nestor. That's a great question. After I graduated high school in Chicago, I actually spent some time living overseas in Jordan. And um, I was trying to learn Arabic, and it's a really hard language. I was really struggling, and I was actually taken in by a group of women who were from Iraq. Um, so they had sought refuge in Jordan, and they were interested in being resettled in Australia. So from that experience... Um, being a foreigner in a country, um, feeling stupid, not being able to speak the language, feeling like I didn't understand the culture and had no one there who was you know, my family or my friends, and being taken in by a group of people, a group of women who were also outsiders in that country um, was really a life-changing experience for me. And then I came back actually to Chicago and I started working with World Relief in Chicago, and I was really inspired by the work that they're doing resettling refugees here in the United States. And that's when I thought, wow, I really want to understand what is the U.S. Refugee Admissions Program and what does it mean to work with refugee and migrant populations? Um, and that kind of started off my life career. And since then, I've worked in both Latin America, back in the Middle East, in the Philippines, in Southeast Asia, and now in China, working with migration and trying to understand what is it like for migrant and refugee populations. And since you're talking so much about the work that you have done to help the uh, migrant populations and the refugee populations, will you help to guide people or to tell people because people come to me all the time and ask me like uh, especially after we do one 80 minutes around the world show and we tell stories of immigrants people come to me and say like so what do i do what how can i help and i'm like uh listen to our podcast listen to our shows uh share your stories but as a person that actually worked with immigrants as yourself what would you suggest or what would you tell people that they should be able to do or how can they help the immigrant community I think your answer is a great one. I'm listening to your podcast and supporting other projects like uh, my project, The Beautiful Crossing, and also 80 Minutes Around the World, I think is, is really important. Um, 
I think my answer is kind of a double answer right here in the United States. We speak, we say that actions speak louder than words and people have this desire to really do something. And I think that it's, it is important to actually to get up out of your home, go out and, and do something. Um, but at the same time, um, so in, in that case, um, it's important to, for example, write your senators right now as they're, as they're trying to decide what will be the cap for the refugee admissions program. Um, it's important to support organizations like World Relief here in Chicago where I worked and other organizations that are working with refugee populations. Um, but I think um, it's also more important to kind of learn and educate yourself, be following the news, listening to stories like those that you're putting on your podcast, um, and kind of appreciating and valuing the refugee admissions program and, and sort of the opportunities that people have to come here to the United States. Because I hope that um, when we do have a change in the administration and a political change, some of those programs will be resurrected and we'll need an American public that values them and cares about them and wants to support sort of the rebirth of those programs. And when you talk about the programs that need to be rebirthed or resurrected, that's also because of your personal experience. Uh, you were working with an organization and then the funding got cut. Uh, I think we talk about that, that funding got cut, and then you couldn't work with that organization anymore. Yeah, correct. So I was working here in World Relief Chicago as an employment counselor. Um, my job was taking people who had just arrived in the United States to their first job interviews and kind of coaching them through helping them find employment here in the U.S. Um, it was an amazing job experience for me, and I learned a lot along the side of my, my clients. And then in 2017, when President Trump passed his first executive order, Um, that meant that the travel ban, that's how kind of it, it's come to be called, was enacted. And the refugee admissions program was immediately stopped, actually, for a period of about three months. And then the cap was lowered. Um, so many of the organizations that initially had been receiving refugees then received far fewer refugee families. And they had to cut funding for a lot of programs and also for staff. Um, so I decided at that point it was a good point for me to leave World Relief Chicago. And I actually went down to Ecuador Um, where I worked with a UN agency that also works with migration. But kind of while I was in, in Ecuador, I thought, wow, I mean, I wish I was back in the U.S. Um, and I wish that I could be there sort of supporting the communities that I was working with and the families that um, I first kind of was part of when they were, were coming to the United States. Um, and I thought about, you know, I really want to do something. And so that's kind of how I come up with the, the project idea for the Beautiful Crossing. And would you like to tell us a little bit more about your project and what is it? about, because we heard about it a couple of times, and by now people might be wondering, well, that sounds like a great project, but tell me a little bit more about it. Sure. So um, I started working on the Beautiful Crossing January 2018, so about a year after President Trump first enacted the, the his first executive order or the travel ban. Um, and I felt that initially after sort of the refugee admissions program had received sort of these setbacks, people were talking about refugee admissions, and, and they were curious about the program, and it was in the news, it was in the media. But about a year later, it had kind of dropped off. And um, most people, they really didn't understand that the, the program had been severely affected. And there were very few refugees coming into the United States. And many of those organizations that were working to resettle families had had, had to close their doors or were about to. Um, and I really wanted to do something to kind of help people figure out what had happened a whole year later. And, and also provide a platform for refugee families to talk about their experience. Um, so kind of how the political shift and the change in the political environment had maybe made people feel unwelcome. Um, and I wanted to empower them to sort of share their story and their experiences here in the United States. So often I feel like refugees are kind of given two boxes that they can, they can climb into. One is sort of the victim box, and they're asked, so 
how did you become a refugee? And they're, they're kind of being pushed to justify their experience and use their pain or sort of what they saw to prove that they have a right to be here. And the other box is sort of this villain box. Um, it, they're seen as abusing the asylum system or abusing the refugee program. Um, they're seen as as sort of a detriment to the society or a reason why there are not enough jobs for people. And I feel that so often um, they're not given any middle ground between these two options. And I felt like I really want to create a, a project or a story, a platform in which people are able to talk about their experiences um, going to McDonald's or signing their kids up for school, getting their first job, um, experiences that all of us have, and then therefore helping people to kind of um, humanize the migration, humanize migration and, and the immigration issue here in the United States. Yeah, I completely understand the, the, uh, wanting to give people a platform because that's what our, our show, 80 Minutes Around the World, and our podcast does. Um, it's a show that we try to provide a platform for other people to tell the stories and to humanize the immigration experience. With your project, A Beautiful Crossings, what is the most important or the most rewarding thing that you learned from that project? It's also a great question. So with my with my project, I was kind of trying to decide, um, how do I do this and, and how do I get people interested? Um, I love outdoor extreme sports, so I decided I was going to bike across the United States. Whoa, 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 whoa. I don't even want to bike to my work. <laughs> and you bike all across the United States. That's That's amazing. So summer 2018, I biked 4,380 miles across the United States. And I stopped in 15 different cities and did interviews with about 60 different refugee individuals about their experiences coming to the United States and becoming new Americans. Um, And through that experience, I learned a lot, um, both from the people that I interviewed and the people that hosted me along the way. Um, Whether it was a friend of a friend of a friend of someone's cousin who agreed to take me in, or someone that I met in a gas station who knew I had no place to stay that night and, and offered to let me stay in their house. Um, I actually think that one of the experiences that was the most convicting or, or what I learned the most from was how little I really knew about the United States and about rural America in particular. Um, I spent most of my time biking on sort of small country highways, even dirt roads, um, going through areas where there are towns with a couple hundred people, um, And I had never really spent a lot of time in that part of the country. My grandparents are from rural West Virginia, and I'd gone out to their farm when I was a kid. But I really couldn't relate or connect with that part of our country because I'd grown up here in Chicago. Um, And, of course, as you can imagine, most of the people in those towns are not very pro-immigrant or pro-refugee. So they would pull over on the side of the road and ask me, you know, are you okay? What are you doing out here on your bike? I think a lot of times they're concerned to see a girl biking alone. Um, and they, I was actually going to ask you that because that's like as, as, as a man, I had the privilege that I don't have to look out for my security as much. As a female does, uh, I know that I had the privilege. Um, in your case, you're a woman riding through the United States all by yourself. That's quite an undertaking. It was, it was a good adventure for sure. Um, and in many of those cases, yeah, people, their main kind of entry point was concern for my safety and and then it would kind of be, well, that's kind of cool that you're biking. And then they'd say, well, why are you doing it? And I would bring up Beautiful Crossing and the project that I'd created. And um, in many cases, you could just see their face kind of fall. Um, and they would kind of disengage or, or not want to talk about it or, or feel that it was too political. Um, but I passed out hundreds and hundreds of Beautiful Crossing business cards across the United States in small towns 
and I had hundreds of amazing conversations with people um, about what I was doing, in which people were able to kind of ask questions and confess fears, um, and I think felt that I was somehow probably as a white American, innocent-looking girl biking across the U.S., a safe person to talk about that and have that conversation with. Um, I think that was kind of the most convicting experience for me on my ride. Yeah, and, and I think I love that connection that you talk about because I also went on vacation a couple of weeks ago with my wife and her family. The thing is that we drew, we, we drove from Chicago all the way there, and it took a while, and in the way there, the expressway was like an accident or something, so we took a detour, and I drove to those streets that you talk about, those tiny streets, and I was driving around, and I'm looking at these houses that are trailer homes, and I'm looking at that, they don't look like the things that we see in the movie. They look like people that are poor, that are struggling. And I never seen that side of America like, as that, that you speak of. I Because I have lived in Chicago for all my life, for, for, for all my adult life, for all my 30 years that I've been living here in the United States, I have lived in Chicago. And I have gone to L.A., I have gone to uh, Las Vegas, I have gone to New York, to all the cities. We usually don't visit, don't look at the rural side of America. And as we are ignorant of the life and the struggles of that side of America, they are also ignorant of the struggles of the life of the immigrant population. So I think that that's what's missing, is the connection, is those bridges that we need to build. And hopefully through our stories, we could do some of that. I agree. And I, I really did find that usually it's stories that speak the most to people and kind of question, push people to question themselves and what they think is true. Um, and in many cases, I would kind of be speaking with someone, maybe someone I was staying with, a host, or in, in one sort of situation, I remember um, I biked into this tiny little town in, in Washington. Um, it's kind of in like the Washington desert area. Who knew there was a, coming from Chicago, I didn't know there was a desert in Washington. And I bike in and I'm all sweaty and they're having a summer music concert series. So I bike up there with my, you know, I have all my bike with all my stuff loaded on it. And I probably smell like peanut butter and and just... <laughs> or worse. <laughs> or worse, exactly. And this dog just would not leave me alone. It was so, you know, it just really loved, you know, wanted me to pet it and wanted to bite all the stuff on my bike. And and so the two owners come over and they start talking to me. And, you know, why are you riding? And I say, oh, I'm, I'm doing this car, cross-country ride. I started in New York. I'm almost to Portland. I'm so excited. And, well, why? Why are you doing it? Oh, I'm doing this project, Beautiful Crossing. And I start explaining, you know, that I, I want to spread awareness about the U.S. Refugee Admissions Program. And I've been doing all these interviews. They're available online. There's portrait photography. You can check it out. And I see that turns out there's actually a conflict between the couple. So the wife, she'd been working in a public school. And because of her experiences in that school, she had another teacher friend who'd work with refugee children. And so she felt that I understand a little bit what the experience is like for people who are coming to the U.S. and, and I can empathize with them. Whereas her husband was much more conservative um, and really felt that um, this program is a danger to our country and, and I don't want to you know, support it. And so I kind of, kind of felt that there was this tension and um, there was this opportunity for me to kind of talk about it and how has the program started, right? And, and what's the history of the program? And you know, actually, it started post-World War II. You had, you know, Jews who were coming from Europe to the United States and local churches who decided to sponsor them and help resettle them. Um, and then later, after the, during the Vietnam War, the U.S. government formalized that program and created an, a formal opportunity for people to come. And they actually contracted some of those church organizations to help support people. And we talk about that and kind of different people that 
people groups that have come to the United States and and how do organizations support them when they come and we help them get jobs and and families and helping them register their kids for school and you could see that the husband's kind of mind was changing and then later he actually posted on his personal Instagram um, and tagged me and tagged my project in saying I met this girl on her bike and she changed my mind oh that's so wonderful and the fact that he he wanted to share that with his kind of voice that opinion on social media in an environment where often our friends are so, um, if you are in with one social bubble or another, you really don't want to speak out or express an opinion that's against your other, you know, the other people in your social circle. Well, sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes you do express an opinion and you get this uh, this counter opinion and it becomes, it's no longer an exchange of opinion, but it becomes an argument. And things could escalate really fast, especially in social media. I, I had so many examples of social media arguments on Facebook, on Twitter, that things just get out of hand. And people are afraid to, to get into this conversation because sometimes, you know, people have the points of views and they really want to defend them. But it's not about, you know, it's not about changing somebody's uh, mind. Um, it's just about letting you know about my experience. You could keep your own mindset right. you could keep your opinion it's about I mean, the conversation yeah it's just about the conversation it's about letting you know what i lived through you could either disregard my experience or you could listen to it a little bit and maybe appreciate my point of view a little bit more and i would appreciate your point of view a little bit more and i'll understand why you look at things the way that you do Are you going to continue with Beautiful Crossing? So right now I'm actually working on sort of the last set of, of interviews. Um, so I speak Arabic and I also speak Spanish. So I have a couple interviews that are in those languages. and um, But I need to hire a couple of translators to help me with Dari and Kiswahili and a couple other languages that, that I don't speak. So I'm working on that last final set. Um, and then I'm hoping to kind of spread the archive and, and have more people connecting and seeing the archive, listening to the stories. Um, so I'm hoping to do a couple of exhibitions with maybe public libraries and have some of those portraits and, and stories on display um, and looking for more opportunities and ways that uh, maybe organizations that are still working with refugee populations can use it for volunteer training materials. Um, and just sort of the public can connect with those stories and, and really hear people's voices and, and hear about their experiences. That was Chicago-based storyteller and refugee advocate Alana Murphy. Alana has spent the past nine years working with refugee and immigrant populations in the United States, Latin America, the Middle East, and Southeast Asia. In the summer of 2018, she biked 4,380 miles across the U.S. to raise awareness about the U.S. Refugee Admissions Program. Along the way, she interviewed resettled refugees about their experiences starting life over in the United States. Because we love Alana's work so much, we share here a clip from an interview captured by Alana on her cross-country ride. Here's Abdul, originally from Somalia, who came to the U.S. as a refugee in 1999. Alana met Abdul in Kansas City, Missouri, where he now calls home. People talk much about success, independence, liberty, cultural aspects. But I will say the best thing that I have learned from this country that no any other nation have it is the Constitution, whereby your rights is defended. It may take years to defend it, 
that you have that opportunity to defend your speech, to defend your right to liberty, and to be who you want to be. Yes, somebody can say, oh, we don't want hijab. Oh, we don't want these Muslims. But the truth is, that constitution will defend you however it may be. One of the things that I, I have been thinking, and in fact, I will be doing the plan right now, is how to pay back to United States. Although I do it secretly, but right now I want the refugees to participate and immigrants and anybody who came into this nation, either through the hearts or anybody, you know. But the whole concept is, as refugees, we have been helped, and so we want to help. And so now we are starting a food and a kitchen, and we want to start it small and then elaborated and we are starting with the veterans right now and so we'll be feeding some of the veterans who will be in the streets so that we can give them transportation and refugees who are taxi drivers who are uber drivers will participate in this and so whoever who wants will be driving from there the food will be prepared so we're starting with veterans and as we grow we'll be pulling more people you can listen to Abdul's full story and other stories captured during Alana's journey at beautifulcrossing.com. While you're there, please click on the donate button to learn how you can support the remaining translation work to help complete the Beautiful Crossing archive. Immigration Stories with Nestor Gomez is a production of 80 Minutes Around the World Immigration Stories. More information on 80 Minutes Around the World immigration stories can be found on our website nestorgomezstoryteller.com and the show's Facebook page. Please contact us if you have a story you want to share or would like to invite the show to your city or organization near you. Immigration Stories podcast is created, produced by Nestor Gomez and Angel Link. Thank you for listening. Please remember to like and share.